This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the ESV Scripture Journal. Each ESV Scripture Journal pairs the entirety of an individual book of the Bible with lightly lined blank pages opposite each page of Bible text, allowing readers to take extended notes or record insights and prayers directly beside corresponding passages of Scripture. These thin, portable notebooks are great for personal Bible reading and reflection, small group study, writing out extended portions of scripture, or taking notes through a sermon series. Pick up an ESV scripture journal wherever Bibles are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. TGC Podcast now exclusively features keynote and breakout sessions from our national, regional, and women's conferences. Before we begin today's episode, we want to announce TGC's newest podcast called Gospel Bound. Each week, Colin Hansen talks with insightful guests about books, ideas, and how to navigate life by the gospel in a post-Christian culture. Subscribe now to Gospel Bound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we bring you a message from Tom Nelson on the three facets of fruitfulness God desires. This message was originally given at the Gospel Coalition's 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. I'm Tom Nelson. Glad to have you all here. I'm so impressed uh, that you're actually here. You having a good conference so far? Isn't it amazing? What what a blessing it is. And uh, again, just I'm so delighted you're here. Uh, some of my wonderful colleagues with Made to Flourish are here. You're going to hear more about uh, that work that we do. I think at the end, Matt's going to share a little bit. But uh, I also come to you because I've had the joy of being a part of the Gospel Coalition from the very beginning. Um, I'm humbled to share that, that we... Uh, came together in Chicago, 40 of us, uh, how many years ago? Uh, and with a great God, and it's been just a joy to see the uh, expansion and the work of the Gospel Coalition. So uh, it's uh, great to be with you. So I hope you're having a great time. Glad you're here. Glad you're part of the Gospel Coalition. Can I ask you, like, first of all, just uh, some hand raise? I want to say who is all here. Like, how many of you are actually pastors? Okay, okay. Uh, and... In the business world or another kind of vocation, just kind of the blend. Okay, so we got a good blend. Okay, well, fantastic. I love pastors and I love other vocations, so we're glad you're here. So I'm going to pray not because it's um, expected of a pastor. Uh, I serve a wonderful congregation in Kansas City, but I just uh, like to center my heart and mind, and uh, I trust you will as well. So thank you for being here. So Lord, we give this time to you, and and we do ask, Lord, that, that you would open our eyes and ears. Uh, Lord, we've had a lot of wonderful 
food for our souls and our minds. Uh, move it to our hearts and our hands and our service for your good. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to love as you love, that you'd order our loves properly. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that I dreaded most growing up uh, was school. Now, before you jump to conclusions, it wasn't just because I hated class. Actually, I like class. I like the life and the mind. But growing up, the challenge for me was getting to school. And because the moment I walked on, on that bus uh, and got up those stairs, I realized I was different. Uh, I still remember comments uh, that my fellow students made way back in elementary school. They still stay with me. They're companions of my soul. They shadow me. Comments like, why are you wearing that? Who cuts your hair? Why don't you paint your house? Those words are still part of my journey, part of my life, because I grew up getting on the bus as the poorest kid on the bus. I grew up in a single-parent home. My mom was an amazing woman. My dad died when I was young, and I grew up in the context of rural poverty. My mom did everything she could do to keep food on the table. She was a teacher. Imagine, I'm six of seven kiddos. <laughs> and uh, my mom was a hero to me. And I don't ever remember you know, going hungry, but I remember the cupboards being quite bare at times and that we were on the edge of economic survival. That was the life I grew up in. Now, one of the realities is I was also uh, part of a wonderful Christian family. And my mom loved the Lord. My dad loved the Lord before he passed. And we were a part of a faith community just a couple miles away, a local church. And I remember as a young boy being in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and sometimes Wednesday. Some of us can't even imagine that anymore. But I remember being in church, and our whole family was in church, and that was a vital part of our life. Our pastor was a really wonderful person who loved Jesus. But I have to tell you, I can't ever remember, ever remember anyone in our congregation reaching out to my mom to even find out what her Monday life was really like. All of them knew my father died. All of them knew my mom must have been struggling. It was encoded on the sleeves of my shirts and my trousers. But I have to say that I grew up in a faith tradition, a wonderful faith tradition, that had a massive gap between Sunday and Monday. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that occurred over and over again because of a theological framework, a cultural framework, was that what mattered most was my soul. And I'm glad my soul mattered. And what mattered, secondly, was I would get to heaven one day. That's what mattered most. What mattered is really what occurred on Sunday. But what occurred on Monday was a necessary drudgery. It didn't have a lot of connection to the faith that I loved in Scripture, a gospel faith. The pastor was a wonderful man who loved God and loved his word. But in his theological tradition and his theological framework, the mantra, if I may use that word, the common refrain that was the ultimate telos was just be faithful. It's all about just being faithful. And 
my family experienced the realities when that was the primary focus of faithfulness. Now, lest you want to brand me a heretic immediately, faithfulness matters. But let me ask you a question. Is just being faithful all it is? Is that all there is? Can we be faithful without being fruitful? Our Lord Jesus profoundly frames apprenticeship, discipleship, mathetes with him, not primarily in faithfulness categories, certainly there, but primarily in fruitfulness categories, right? Let's just take, for example, the Upper Room Discourse, that great section, that intimate conversation Jesus has before his crucifixion that John captures for us in one of the most intimate spaces in the New Testament in John 13 through 17. And Jesus looks at his frightened apprentices, his disciples, and says, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What did Jesus have in mind? What did Rabbi Jesus have in mind? What did Messiah Jesus have in mind? What did our Lord Jesus have in mind? Well, I want to suggest that Jesus had more in mind than some of us have been thinking. Because if we have a broad sense that our theology is a rich theology within a broad canonical coherence of all of Scripture, we understand that Jesus has much in mind when he says fruitfulness. And I'm going to suggest for your consideration as our conversation today is that fruitfulness really matters. The question for all of us is, what did Jesus have in mind? What do the scriptures, the canonical scriptures have in mind when it means to be fruitful as a human being, as an image bearer, as a created one, as a redeemed person? What does it mean to live a fruitful life? Why does fruitfulness matter? Now, there's much we could say about the scriptural threads of fruitfulness, both from a biblical standpoint and from a systematic standpoint. But I want to just give you a little bit of an appetizer of the importance of this theme throughout all of Scripture. And I'm going to suggest immediately in John's immediate context in John 15, fruitfulness, this idea of karpos and abide, meno, are deeply woven together. So in the immediate context, abiding and fruit bearing are inextricably linked in Jesus' mind. And abiding is a rich term. Very rich term, but at the heart of it, it is a sense of intimacy. It is relational wholeness with God and with others, but it's particularly in this context with God. It's relational intimacy. Uh, now, again, fruitfulness, often when we hear that word, we can think of the fruit of the Spirit, which is a really good thing, the character of Christ, or the fruit of people coming to faith. And I'm not saying that's not part of it. But I want to suggest that Jesus has more in mind than the character of Christ reproduced in us in the fruit of the Spirit, as uh, Paul says, or, or that it is absolutely other people who are lost coming to faith. Fruitful, a fruitful witness is a valid context and an important one. But in my tradition, those are the two realities of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness was the character of Christ reproduced in me through the power of the Holy Spirit and also others coming to faith. So the fruitful disciple was one who led many to Jesus and one who was like Jesus. Pretty good stuff. I'm all over that but there's more. And what Jesus has in mind is more than that, if we understand the broad sweep of Scripture, the broader hermeneutic of the canon, and the flow of Scripture. So I want to suggest for your consideration that fruitfulness matters more than we think. 
and bearing much fruit, notice the text, is really, really important to Jesus. And it is one of the main apologetics of what an authentic Christian truly is in all dimensions of life. So I'm going to suggest for your consideration, in addition to the character of Christ reproduced in the apprentice of Jesus, spiritual formation, sanctification, whatever category you want to hang your hat on, uh, and, and the sense of others coming to saving faith in Jesus is a part of that fruitfulness. But there are three things that I think are really important. I call it three facets of fruitfulness. Now, in the book that you've been given, we unpack this in much greater detail and draw out the implications, but I'd like to just give you uh, an appetizer, and then we can have a little bit of interaction. Okay, deal? Okay, you still with me? So can we be faithful without being fruitful? To be faithful is to be fruitful. But what does fruitfulness mean, biblically, theologically? Uh, and so let me unpack three areas. Three areas of fruitfulness that we often miss their importance in what Jesus is saying and what all of Scripture says is, first of all, the fruitfulness of relational intimacy that's tied to abiding in, in the immediate context, but also the fruitfulness of vocational productivity and neighborly love. So most of us probably grasp, at least in the immediate context, that to live a fruitful life, we have a rich, intimate life with God and with others, Right? Uh, and that is really important. I just challenge you that a fruitful apprentice of Jesus has rich, deep relationships with others. Of course, first and foremost with Jesus. But a part of true fruitful living is deep and abiding, intimate relationships with God and with others. So if you are in close friendship, for example, how is Christ-likeness manifesting itself in the relationship you have with that person? What about if you're married? And we talk about the fruitfulness of life. Isn't it interesting that Peter says that our prayers can be hindered, right, if our relationship is out of whack with a spouse? So I just want to suggest this idea of relational intimacy is very foundational of the fruitfulness that Jesus has in mind. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So let me ask you, if I were to uh, look over your shoulder, what is your relational intimacy? Do you have deep, abiding, intimate friendships? Who, those closest to you, those in covenant, if it's a marriage, covenant relationship, do they see you as a fruitful person? Is the character of Christ? Do you have fruitful intimacy with others? God created us with relationships in mind. He redeems us with that in fellowship and with others. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I want to go to the other two because we often miss the other two. But relational intimacy matters. Let me just challenge you that. God created you with relationships in mind. He redeemed you with relationships in mind. And one of the greatest evidence of a flourishing life is the close relationships we have with others and many others who are different than us, by the way. But secondly is vocational productivity. Let me highlight that because we spend more time unpacking that in the economics of neighbor love. When we look at the fruitfulness, we were created not only relationship in mind, we were created with work in mind to be productive, to co-create with God in the world in a different sense. And I want to unpack a little of that for you from a quick biblical theme. First of all, we see Jesus spending the vast majority of his time on planet Earth, not as an itinerant rabbi proclaiming the kingdom of God and going to the cross, as important and vital as that is in the crescendo of his work, but we see him spending 30 years in what is called by theologians the hidden years of Jesus. Jesus spends 30 years in a non-itinerant rabbinical calling, working as a tectone, his, working with his hands, uh, as a carpenter or a, a blue-collar worker. Now, again, 
one of the things that we should have if we have coherence in our theology and coherence on the biblical text, we have to say, why in the world would Jesus spend the vast majority of his time on planet Earth as the sinless son of God working with his hands? And there's all kinds of implications of that, but it fits beautifully in the biblical story. It's not a waste. It's not a second thought. It doesn't minimize his rabbinical, itinerant preaching or his ultimate work on the cross. But it's an important factor to consider that Jesus, in his incarnate form, spent the vast majority of his time as a sinless son of God on planet Earth as a carpenter, working with his hands, serving others. See, Jesus not only faced every temptation we can without sin, he faced the most difficult customers without sin, right? I mean, we have to bring him down to where he is, right? But also, Jesus obviously fits into the biblical narrative. I mean, he's the author and he fits into it. So let's go back to Genesis really quick. We have to start where, where the Bible starts. If we don't have a rich understanding of the beginning of the story in a biblical theology, we have a black and white instead of an HD reality of the gospel. So if we were to just take a little bit of time, I encourage you to read this. We unpack it more. But Genesis 1 through 3 is really important for many things. But it's really important when we understand fruitfulness. So let me just unpack a little bit for your appetizer. Okay, I want to encourage you to study Genesis 1 through 3. If you don't have a deep grasp of that text, the rest of Scripture often is deeply impoverished. So, so when we open God's Word and Genesis 1, it's very important to understand that God, in His special revelation to us, chooses to reveal Himself first and foremost as a worker. In fact, Eugene Peterson, who I have the highest regard for in his scholarship and his writings, he just went to be with the Lord not long ago. Eugene Peterson, again, is pretty sharp on his Hebrew and other texts, wouldn't you say? Um, and Eugene Peterson says that Genesis 1 through 3 is tr first and foremost a journal of work. Um, is he overstating it? I don't think so. So, for example, to give you a little bit of that, and most of you have some awareness of the text, but study this text carefully. Because if we don't grasp the fullness of Genesis 1 through 3, we really are going to miss much. So in Genesis 1, God, again, immediately reveals himself in all the wonder of his infinite goodness. He could have revealed himself anyway, right? If you start the story of special, canonical, inherent revelation, right? God introduces him with Barah. God created. And Genesis 1 emphasizes that. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But I just want to go to the cultural mandate. You know, right after the, being made in God's image, humans are made distinct in God, God's image and do some work on that. Salem and DeMuth is brilliant. Um, John Kilner, Dignity and Destiny is the best book, I think, written on the image of God. Just sideboard. But right after the image of God, right after God says who we are, made in his image, then he says basically, now get to work. Right? In this order. Ontology and work. Image bearing, male and female, Right after that, if you look at it in 28, follows, now get to work. And it's very unusual in the Hebrew text, okay, extremely unusual to have five Hebrew imperatives locked in a row like a train. So when we get to 128, right, God works, he creates humans, he blesses them, which is a huge concept. And then he says, now basically to work. You know the text, right? Most of you are very informed, Genesis 128. God says to them, after he says, you are made in my image, right? Their statement of being and, and, and their worth, right? All the richness of connection and reflection in, in that word. He says, be fruitful, multiply. 
It's in English. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. I want you to notice the importance of fruitfulness in how we are made in God's image. Image bearing is multifaceted, of course. But in the Genesis narrative, the primary thrust is work. To image God is to image his work as a creator. That's the context of the narrative. Now, there are many other facets as well, of course. But I want us to grasp that. And you'll notice be fruitful is the lead imperative. So be fruitful is the Hebrew para. It's a very important word in the Old Testament. It carries on through the New Testament in karpos, but it's a fruitful theme, fruitful theme. Let me just unpack a little bit. In Genesis 1, 28, these are five imperatives. Again, it's extremely unusual in Hebrew text. It shows its importance, like exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point in the grammar. Be fruitful then is followed by two imperatives. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill. This is the first aspect of the semantic idea of fruitfulness. That is procreativity. That's having babies, right? It's going to fit in the narrative, right? As human beings. Be fruitful is to fill and multiply, right? So that main imperative, the first idea comes from the two imperatives that follow it. Be fruitful. What does that mean? Multiply and fill, but that's not all. Then two other imperatives follow it that give the other aspect of the meaning of fruitfulness. And if we don't get this, we miss it. That is what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Look at your text. Subdue it and have dominion. This is about productivity. So both of this, these ideas emerge in Genesis of being made in God's image is that we are reflecting that by being procreative and productive. Okay, And we can unpack a lot of Genesis 2. Genesis 2 unpacks man as a worker, humans as a worker. The word helper is not, is not just a helper for who, it's a helper for what. So I just want to tease you a little bit of interest. Study the text carefully. And you will notice in the text of Genesis that being made in God's image means many things. But one of the main threads in the Genesis text is being fruitful, being fruitful. Being fruitful has both productivity or working within the contours of creation. God says, now get to work, now make it better, right? Get to work. Do something with what I've given you. You don't create like I do, you fashion, that's yatsar. I create of nothing, but now get to work with what I've done and make it better. This is the theme. It's beautiful. And marriage again ends at the end of Genesis 2. So often we hear it's not good for Adam to be alone. That's the major discontinuity in Genesis 2. It's not just because Adam needs Eve for intimacy and relationship. It's for his job description in 2.15. 2.15 tells us that God said to Adam, right? Notice earlier in 5, verse 5, that there's no bush, no rain, no plant, and no man. And notice the modifier, to work the ground. Same word, avadah, avad. So God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, to nurture and protect creation. And he cannot do that alone. That's where the text goes. He needs help. And the animals can only do so much. They can be, notice earlier in Genesis, be fruitful, multiply for the animals, but not have dominion and subdue it. Look at the text. 
Okay, just so I'm just want to say that this idea of fruitfulness and productivity is really important. Let me just scoot really quick. All the way through the scripture, it's a vital thing of being fruitful with the work of our hands, the fruitfulness of our work, of our life, of our callings, paid or unpaid. And work is fundamentally in biblical categories, this avodah is a seamless idea of work and worship, is contribution, not compensation. So what you have throughout the Old Testament is this building of being fruitful. As an image bearer, we are to be fruitful in all dimensions, including our productivity, our work. And for example, you think of this Psalm 1. Let's just use the Psalter. You know, the Old Testament is broken in three parts. And it builds. The Torah is the instruction. On top of that is the Nabaim, the prophets. On top of that is the Kataim, the writing. So it's built in threes. And when you follow the progression of the Old Testament, you see this fruitful theme. Let's just give you one example. In the Torah, Deuteronomy 28, you have this wonderful picture of the fruit of the land and the fruit of the womb. Blessing and cursing. Just take a look. And you have this para, this fruitfulness, both of productivity, our work, what we do with creation, cultivating blessings from the creation, contribution, work, what we do, right? And also the fruit of the womb, having babies. So you have para of procreativity and productivity in Torah. Then let's just go to the Navaim or, or the writings, okay? Psalm 1, the whole Psalter set on the metaphor of a tree that bears fruit in its season. Let's go to Proverbs 31. Oh, gosh. Proverbs, the personification of wisdom. And however you understand the beauty of Proverbs, which is an amazing picture of wisdom, but there is a crescendo structure of Proverbs. Proverbs 31. And we hear about a Proverbs 31 woman, but notice in Proverbs 31, the centrality of para or fruitfulness. Yes, she's fruitful because she has children and cares for her household, but that's not how it ends. The very last verse, the personification of wisdom is not a priest or a king or a man. It's a woman. She is affirmed with the highest praise. Let the work of her hands, para, let the work of her hands, yod, praise her in the gates. That's in the exchange of commerce. That's the marketplace. That's a woman, a businesswoman like Lydia or others engaged in commerce. I'm just saying, when we look at scripture, we go through it, fruitfulness matters over vocational productivity. So let me just ask you a question. All of us, if we are any kind of paid context, 501c3, whatever we do, if Jesus were to give you a job review, okay? He's going to give all of us a job review if I read the scriptures someday, right? But Matthew 25 is faithful, but the language is also fruitful, by the way, okay? But he's going to evaluate the stewardship of all that we've been given to follow him everywhere, the whole gospel, everywhere, all the time. So if Jesus were to give you your job description or in this year, this quarter of your work, what would Jesus say? Is that not what Rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul, really begins to say? Like, whatever you do, Colossians, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. It's not to minimize our earthly bosses and accountability, but think about what that means. That when we stand before God, not, not in a, as gospel people, not in a judgment of, of uh, you know, severity, but a judgment of stewardship, right? The judgment seat of Christ. That we are asked to be fruitful as stewards of all dimensions of reality. So if Jesus were to give you a job review, if you're in a church, you're working in as a nurse, whatever field it is, 
What would Jesus say, or a student, what would Jesus say about your performance this year? No, that's not a meritorious performance, of course, as gospel people, right? Jesus has done that for us, but it matters. One of the greatest challenges for me is I have a 360 review of my team and where I serve. But before God, and I'm very, I try to be very accountable to a team and I serve with two boards. But ultimately, my job review is Jesus' review of me. How I've treated people, the loves of my heart, sacrifice in my life, all of that. The diligence without, again, the danger of workaholism or workism as my colleague Matt wrote a wonderful article recently in TGC. You know, Jesus called us and God created us to worship him through our work. It's a major, major theme. Now, we don't worship our work, but work is a primary way we honor God and image him all the way through scripture. And I could just go through text after text after text. So I'm just saying fruitfulness matters. Fruitfulness matters in your relational intimacy. If you're a fruitful Christian, if you are bearing much fruit, and much fruit, notice that, much fruit, and so prove to be my true apprentices. The follower of Jesus is known by their fruitfulness. By your fruit, you will know them, right? So relational intimacy, how are you doing there? How about vocational productivity? Are you doing better at your work? Wherever God's called you, are you more skilled? Whether it's preaching, whether it's running a company, are you more skilled today than you were last year? Are you a better leader? That matters to God. And it matters to Jesus. Are you a growing, fruitful person in your vocational calling? But lastly, I want to highlight, we want to move from me to we. I've talked a lot about me, a lot about individual right now, right? But if you go back to Genesis, it's not good for Adam to be alone for multiple reasons. Because reflecting on a Trinitarian God, God had a community in mind. And all that mystery of oneness and threeness. So from creation on, God created us with community in mind. With one another. We know all the one another's, all of them in the New Testament. Where does that come from? Because when we understand fruitful disciple or fruitful apprentice of Jesus, we are not just about my fruitfulness. We must move from me to we, from me to we. If we understand creation, the fall, redemption, consummation, there is a community. We were created with community in mind. We are not merely isolated individuals. So what that means is we need to move from me to we. And Jesus, brilliantly as he does, does this over and over again, right? So let me just turn your attention. I'm going to go to the New Testament. Are you okay? I, I love the Old Testament. I love the New Testament. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. And again, if you have a Bible, or you can listen just for a moment. But let's move to the third facet of fruitfulness that flows from all of those. Christ-like character, relational intimacy, vocational productivity leads to the third aspect of fruitfulness biblically. And that is neighborly love. So in Luke chapter 10, the fruitfulness of neighborly love is really important. And we often miss this. So let's just review really quickly Luke chapter 10. That's my time here. In Luke chapter 10, again, if you have it open, you can. I'll just summarize it um, if you have your Bible. But in Luke chapter 10, there's an amazing conversation between two brilliant people. Two brilliant scholars of the Old Testament. Um, and one of the scribes comes up to Rabbi Jesus and says to him, um, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, let's translate that. And I want to affirm Jonathan Pennington and others who've done so well on the Sermon on the Mount and understanding the Stoic influence of Jesus' teaching. Okay, This has not been done well. Dallas Willard did it really well. But the Stoic aspect, not just the Hebraic aspect, but the Stoic aspect. 
So when Jesus has a conversation, remember Luke is a Gentile. Okay. So all this converges around what is going on here. And Jonathan Pennington has done a, a wonderful work for us in the Sermon on the Mount. What is going on in terms of Jesus' Stoic influence? So what's going on here is that you're having a conversation about how do I inherit internal life? And we can read that very reductionistic. The idea here among is, let's just use Stoic language as well as Hebraic language of wholeness, integrity, but it's the life, a flourishing life, or the good, true, and beautiful life. This is the idea. It's not just future. It is a future component, but it's what is the good life? We might paraphrase it probably best that way. What is the truly good life that God has for us? Two rabbis who know the Old Testament perfectly, you know, cold, memorized, are having this conversation. And we learn later he's testing Jesus. He has ulterior motives. But the conversation is about what is the good and true beautiful life? Okay, that's the main conversation. Now, and, and obviously forever, um, so there's a conversation that goes on, and when you follow this conversation with Jesus and this rabbi, this other old scribe, um, there's a wonderful Socratic exchange, right? There's, there's questions back and forth. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, what do you say? What does the law say? Technically? What does the law say? What does the Torah say? Um, and the guy pulls two texts, you know that, from the Old Testament, from Torah, and says, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Um, and Jesus basically says, if I may just sort of interject here, he says, you got it. You got it. And you think among such brilliant two men covering the sacred text and giving a midrash or a commentary, it would stop right there, wouldn't you? You just think that's the end of the story. Because Jesus says, you got it. Now go do it. And notice in the text what Luke, Dr. Luke, does. He now sets the stage. Because it's surprising, isn't it? <laughs> Basically, what this brilliant Old Testament scholar asks, and, and Luke gives his hand, he's trying to justify himself, which is a fascinating word. But he says, like, who is my neighbor? Not, not how do I love God? You, you think there's more of an interaction, right? Like, how do I love God? That's really important. But what about my neighbor? So that in itself is rich with ideas. So what, how does Jesus respond? He doesn't answer him. He tells a story. And the story is the story of the Samaritan. And many people like to call the Samaritan the good Samaritan. I'm kind of in that camp. But let's, he's known as the good Samaritan. So you know the story, right? Right? This is the story. This is the context. He's telling a story. He doesn't answer the question. He tells a story. It's about who is my neighbor and what does it mean? So Jesus is going to explain what the neighbor is, but he's going to add another piece to it. What does it mean to truly love him? Right? Because he doesn't ask, how do I love my neighbor? Notice the text. Who is my neighbor? Right? So Jesus is going to respond, not only who my neighbor is, but how do you love him? Okay? Just giving you a little context. So here's the story. You know the story. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story of Two religious men, uh, like me, 501c3 people, paid to be good, using language. Wonderful calling. I'm not diminishing that. But they're making their way down from Jerusalem to Jericho on the Wadi Kilt. It's an amazing place. Jericho is from Neolithic times. Adam Kenyon, 
British archaeologists uncovered it. 8,000 BC was a hub of economic activity. It connects the uh, Arabian spice trade with the king's highway. It's an amazing place. This is why Rahab had such a, I don't mean to be disrespectful, had such a great business. It was an economic center. People came from all over to Jericho. It was like Wall Street. Okay? So economic hub for the spice trade. Way back. So Jesus, again, immersed in the world of economics and business and life, that was his major world, understood Jericho. So these guys are coming down, two guys are coming down, right? But it starts not just with the priest and the Levite, it starts with a man, we don't know who he is, but he's most likely Jewish, who is on his way to Jericho, or at least the implication is, he's in there, he's in a, there's a section of the Wadi Kilt that's very conducive for robbery. But notice, Jesus sets the parable in the context of economic injustice. A man is robbed, not just beaten. He's robbed, killed, and left for dead or half dead, depending on your translation. This is important to Jesus because Jesus will do this other times in his uh, uh, Bailey. I think the best cultural exegete has done good work on this. But what happens here is you have the building of a double contrast, just like the prodigal son or sons. Same framework. So you have this guy coming down to Jericho and he's robbed and beaten and left dead by the road, half dead. The priest and Levite, the Jewish clergy, come down and ignore him. They see him, but they ignore him. And there's all kinds of purity reasons and rationalizations. But then the Samaritan comes on. Notice that Samaritan, Samaritan had clergy. Samaritan, we can't be positive, but it's strong, that he's most likely a business person. There's lots of reasons why we think that as we build a story, but there's two clergy, Jewish clergy. There's a man beaten, left, robbed, beaten, left dead by the road. And there's a Samaritan coming down to Jerusalem or to Jericho. And that's the picture. So the parable centers around a very unusual word. It's translated in English, compassion. It's only used four times. Luke will use it later in Luke 15. It's a, a visceral, it's a long Greek word. It's a visceral feeling. But the father who sees his son come home, his prodigal younger son, when he sees his son has this visceral compassion. It's an unusual Greek word. So Luke will use it again to describe a familial love for someone. So what happens is this man, most likely Jewish, has been robbed, beaten, and left dead by the road. You still follow me? The two family members in the Jewish family that ignore him is contrasted with the Samaritan Right? And we know, and Luke gives us hint, they have nothing to do with each other. Right, There's all this bias and prejudice and hatred. Sees this Jewish man who's been robbed, beaten, and left dead by the road. And he's the one that has the fatherly love of Luke 15. He has, he sees that image bearer as a family member. And Jesus is reframing neighborly love. A love not of those proximate, but those who are image bearers. He expands the human family. And he does it around this word that is only used of a brother or familial love. So what you have here is you have an amazing thing where this Samaritan has this kind of family love, this compassion. And what does he do? He gets off his mount, right? He gets off his mount 
He renders first aid, which is part of what was required in, in his uh, Samaritan uh, Torah. And then he does more, which is stunning. He puts him on his mount. He takes him to an inn. And let's not forget the importance of the innkeeper doing a good business and providing a service in this story. Okay, let's not forget that. Where would it have been without that business person doing a good business? Okay, just we missed that. Jesus understood that. But he takes him to this inn, and he basically gives him a credit card. says, I'll cover everything when I come back. Now, the language is he's on a business trip. He's going to Jericho. He's a business person. That's the picture of it. And he's caring for someone who is made in God's image, who he treats as a family member. Okay. So in one sense, Jesus will ultimately point the Good Samaritan to himself, correct? But in the context, what what do we have here? We have an amazing contrast, a double contrast, of both the compassion of God for someone and the lack of compassion, right? And the hero who the hero is. But we also have a contrast between economic injustice and economic generosity. Because... There's an overflowing of this business Samaritan person's generosity to a brother in need, a human brother in need, over the top. And Jesus will say, he'll ask the question, who's the neighbor? It's not just location, it's his love. It's the one who did this, and he uses a different word. It's the one who has mercy. Now go do it. Go do it. Go do it. And here's the point. If we understand what Jesus is teaching... We understand that neighborly love is more than just compassion. It is compassion. It is seeing the other as one of us. No matter what their skin color, gender, whatever, right? As a human member of the family that re- requires compassion and love for a need that we meet. Okay. But what we miss is that many times in the Christian context, we speak of compassion, but we don't speak of capacity. And here, here's what I think we miss. The fruitfulness of neighborly love requires both. If we really love our neighbor, it's more than just taking them soup when they're sick. That's a good thing. Or mowing their lawn or whatever. But if we really love our neighbor, both local and global, then we are deeply invested in their well-being. And that means we not only have compassion for those in need, but we seek to have capacity to meet that need. So here's the thesis. When we have compassion without capacity, we have human frustration because we were created to be generous. Isn't that what Paul says when he quotes Jesus in Acts? It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's very tangible money, economic value stuff. We were created to be generous in all dimensions, forgiveness, love, kindness, but also value that's often monetized in an economy. It matters. See, we often talk about managing money well, and we should. You know, praise God for Dave Ramsey and all that. It's really important to manage, but we don't talk about how do you build capacity. And the capacity matters too, not just managing what you have. So the Good Samaritan could have never done what he did unless he had been faithful, fruitful in his work that was monetized in a first century economy. What I'm saying is compassion without capacity is frustration. When you bring compassion or capacity without compassion, this is what you have in Luke 12. You have the rich fool, right? 
someone who had great resources, but was selfish and his whole life was around himself. Alienated from God and his community himself. So when you have capacity without compassion, you have a human alienation. But when you have compassion and capacity together, Jesus is saying you have a great picture of neighborly love. Now, let me just go to Paul really quick. <clears throat> because the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Paul, the Apostle Paul becomes the Apostle Paul. I think, and again, this is just my own, this is not, you know, strong certitude. It's, it's a suggestion, but I think there's something to it. His brilliant letter to the Ephesians captures so much of the implications of the gospel, right? From how we speak, relationships, like who we are in Christ, and then how we live. The gospel profoundly transforms every nook and cranny of human existence. So in Ephesians chapter 4, you begin to see all these different dimensions of how the gospel changes life every day, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And in 428, for example, I think the Apostle Paul is giving a midrash or a commentary on this story. I, I won't, you know, go to the bat, to the mat for that. But there's so much indications by his language that he is giving a midrash, a quick summary, an apostolic summary of Jesus' teaching. So let me quote it to you, and you can look at it. Ephesians 4.29. This is gospel implications to economic life. Okay? So Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Hmm. If you're a gospel person, gospel transforms you, it transforms your whole economic life. Let the thief no longer steal. But let him do honest work, laboring with his hands. Notice how he emphasizes that. Notice the inferential conjunction. So that, why? He may be able to give to anyone in need. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching in the Good Samaritan. Right? Compassion and capacity. Our work matters. Fruitfulness within an economic world, whether it's monetized or not, matters. So I just simply want to say this, is that in my context growing up, what would it have been like for me as a young boy getting on a bus? Okay? And for a single mom who was trying to survive, if our faith community who proclaimed the gospel on Sunday really lived it on Monday. Imagine what it had been like if my faith community understood and lived out the importance of Jesus' words. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What a difference it would have made in my life, my family's life, our community's life, because my mom wasn't the only under-resourced single mom. If we'd have understood Jesus' teaching and the scripture teaching, that to be faithful, we are to be fruitful. That faithfulness matters, but fruitfulness matters. Fruitfulness of intimacy and Christ-like character, the fruitfulness of vocational productivity, and that intimacy and productivity and Christ-like character give us that space and capacity to have the fruitfulness of neighborly love. Fruitfulness matters. And I think I just want to encourage you that often we have a very reductionistic idea of what it means, what Jesus had in mind biblically, theologically, canonically, to be fruitful. So may we be fruitful 
apprentices of Jesus, gospel people, that allow the gospel to seep into every dimension of human existence, every societal structure, every system, all of that matters. It matters to Christ. It matters if we're a gospel people. And it matters we connect Sunday to Monday. May we be fruitful, and may we be faithful in that fruitfulness. Uh, are there any comments or questions? I want to introduce my colleague, Matt Rustin. He's going to talk about what made to flourish, what we're trying to do around the country. But are there comments or questions uh, that you'd like to just share? We can talk afterwards, but I wanted to give you an appetizer of some of the book work on the book and what we're trying to do to uh, help raise the importance of fruitfulness. Yes, yeah. Can you just speak out loud? Thank you. Yes. Uh, Say your name and where you're from. Uh, Brian, I'm from Tomsville, Georgia. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for this talk. Fascinating to me because a lot of the stuff we're doing within our church in Thomasville, Georgia, has a lot to do with what Excellent. Um, but I was curious about if you had any um, examples, possibly, for how churches have done this, other churches have done this. Um, one, one of the things we're exploring right now is Bob Lupton's model yes. of community renovation. Yes. So I don't know if that's an idea you can speak to a little bit, or if there's some other ideas that you can share with us. Well, it's a great question, and I could speak to that, but maybe to share a couple other things. Our Made to Flourish network, and again, you're going to hear about this, we're a pastor's network for the common good across the country. We're three and a half years old. Matt's going to talk more about that. But we're trying to help pastors and churches integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their congregations and communities. So we are we are in this space as an organization trying to help. Um, some a couple things that I think are real important. Um, and I'll give you just a couple things. Let me give you a story. Can I just give you a quick story? And it's just really uh, recent. I serve a remarkable congregation, and we have five campuses in Kansas City, and all five are led by great young preachers. And I get to preach with one of them, uh, half time. Um, and after a recent message, we've been going through actually a series through Genesis, and I got I got the luck of the draw in some of the text on the cultural mandate and Genesis one and two. So I was you know really a happy camper to get into that Hebrew text. Um, but after I spoke, you know, again, part of it is preaching on it and living it and the language and celebrating it. Um, we uh, had well, first of all. We had an individual member of our congregation, she's a nurse, come up. A lot of churches around the country are doing a thing called This Time Tomorrow, which celebrates the priesthood of believers in vocation. And I'm just giving an example. It's not maybe where you're going with community development because we're deeply committed to that. But it's like on a Sunday. You know, when we connect, we talk about connecting Sunday to Monday. If we're a church from Monday, we really are bringing Monday back into Sunday and celebrating the vocations and calling of our work, right? So just to give you a quick idea, uh, my associate, great guy, Andrew Jones, wonderful preacher, uh, after he preached his message, he brought up a young lady named Tyler. And uh, she, uh, again, she's informed ahead of time. So we asked three questions. The clergy asked questions of, of the parishioners. Um, and she's a nurse. And so he brought her up, introduced the whole congregation, all these people out there. People love this time tomorrow. I mean, we have graphics. I mean, you know, sometimes people will snooze in a sermon. I hate to say that, or they're distracted with a cell phone. I know it's humbling, but it happens. But when we have this time tomorrow, everybody, I look around our whole congregation at that campus, and everybody's locked on. And Tyler is asked three questions. We do this for stay-at-home moms or spouses. Sorry about that. Stay-at-home spouses, you know, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, CEOs, retirees, students. We, we do a wide range of Monday callings where they're serving God. So real quick on, on Tyler, an example, because this, this is just like fresh at Christ's community, okay? And we're just one church. So 
Andrew sits on the stool. He's just kind of preaching a great message. Tyler comes up. She's maybe 30 years old. She's just vibrant. And he asks her this first question. He introduces her to the whole congregation at the campus. And he says, uh, Tyler, so tell me or tell us, where has God called you this time tomorrow? We're calling, right? Where has God called you to be his follower and his witness, right? And she talked a little bit about her work. And everybody loves talking about their work, even if they're introverts and shy, right? And she's talking about her patience. It's amazing. And then secondly, it's about a five-minute segment. This is one thing I just love. That's why I had to say it. He looks at her again after she finished. He says, now, you know, we live in a fallen world. You know, around here, we talk a lot about Genesis 1 and 2 and God's design. We're all committed to this. But Genesis 3, there's thorns and thistles. So tell me about the joys and the challenges of, of where God has called you. So she shared briefly about the joy, which she loves, and the hard part of being a follower of Jesus. And then the third question is, how can we pray for you? And she talks about, she talked about, she works in a, in, um, a ward where people are waiting transplants. Can you imagine the emotion of death or new life? I mean, it's a great metaphor of, of the gospel. And she talked about what it's like being Christ's hands to those families and those people facing that, where one gets a organ transplant and one doesn't. I mean, everybody's just like. And so she said, would you pray for me that I could be that professional, but also that presence of Christ? And then Andrew says, I would like everybody here to stand who's a part of the medical field, CEOs that run hospitals, nurses, custodian, whatever it is, and they stand. And then he has everybody stand and he commission, prays for her and commissions everybody who's in that field. More and more churches around the country are doing this. It's profoundly transformational for all involved. This is one example. After I did a message, and I'll stop here, but after I did a message uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were in Genesis, uh, a lady wrote me an email. So I'm just giving you live, because last week I also had a workplace visit with a CEO of a hospital, which we do more and more, which is another whole piece. But this lady wrote me a note after the message on Genesis 2, it was a similar theme. And she and her husband run a company for cookies. Can you imagine how awesome gourmet cookies are? I'm not sure they're always healthy, but you know what I'm saying. So I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know what she did. I didn't know her well. And uh, she sends me a picture. She says, Tom, she's Pastor Tom, often former. She's Pastor Tom. Yesterday's message moved me to this moment. She said, I, and she has a, you know, she's not a big corporation. She has several employees. And she said, on Monday morning, she showed me a picture. On Monday morning, I painted this big sign. Thank God it's Monday. Yay, Monday. And she said that allowed me, because we talk a lot about if you are a follower of Christ, a gospel Christian, it should never be thank God it's Friday. It should be thank God it's Monday. So we do a lot of that language. But she said, it was amazing to me. My employees, many who are not Christians, ask me questions. And she's beginning to reframe. And it's adding cultural value to her cookie company. But it's opening doors to the Christian worldview of why Monday is so important and you don't live for the weekend. So I'm just giving you, this is just right hot off the press, recent things. But it's profoundly transformational. It's profoundly biblical, profoundly important, and profoundly transformational in whole life discipleship. That's really what it is. Yeah. So, um, Maybe one more question, and then I'm going to hand it to you, Matt. 
or comment. Thank you. Uh, there's many things this involves. I didn't, I didn't deal with justice issues or community development or job creation or innovation. All those things are, you know, important part of what we're talking about. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. One more question? Yeah. Um, or a comment? You can make a comment. Uh, question, yeah. Yes. What is What's it, your name and where are you from? Uh, Joe Rowling from Richmond, Virginia. Okay, great. Joe? What is it about um, American evangelicalism and evangelicalism in general that's caused us to have a less than robust view of work? Okay, great question. We hear that. What, what in broader American evangelicalism, and I'm not the expert on that big statement, but what is contributed, is that a word, to, to sort of this anemic, impoverished theology uh, that doesn't encompass every square inch. We'll use Kuyperian language, right? I think, did I get that right? I, I, some of you would have more wisdom than me, and maybe Matt, you want to comment on that. I, um, I think a couple, a couple things. One, I'm giving you my tradition. I, I, again, I am grateful for my tradition. I have the highest regard for my professors, my family. Uh, we were react that I have more of a Scandinavian pietistic tradition, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. Uh, we understood you had to be born again. We understood the heart mattered. I mean, there were things that were really strongly emphasized that came out of a dead state church, right? We tend to correct, overcorrect. But I would say for me, it was a real strong pietistic stream that emphasized so much the future, not the yet, not the now. Um, but here's my bias. Okay, you probably picked up on it. If I'm going to have a conversation, I can go anywhere in the scriptures because this is such a major central thread, right? This is not eisegesis. This is not tack on. This is at the heart of this whole deal, right? It's not the only thing. Uh, it's not a definite article, but it's, you know. But I think for me and for many, I think a couple of things. One, we have not done a, the work we need to do on exegesis and unpacking Torah and particularly creation. Genesis 1 through 3, if, if we... Because in my own experience, and I, you know, I had a wonderful THM experience, and I have great fan, friends. I was just doing a conference in Dallas. Um, we translated, and we had great work in Hebrew, and I'm grateful for that in Greek. Um, that was a really strength of the seminary went through. Um, and we translated, you know, some poetry, Psalms, Ruth in Hebrew, but we didn't do Genesis. And I think, you know, like Romans. I mean. Don't miss Romans in Greek, right? I mean, or Ephesians. So I'm just saying, I think we need to, many of us have not done our homework on Genesis. And for multiple reasons, it's important. And Abraham Heschel is a great Jewish rabbi, said one of the great dangers is the tendency for all of us. And if you are in pastoral work or you're in teaching, this is a job hazard. Okay? It's a, it's a job hazard of superficiality of the familiarity. What happens is, Heschel said, is that the tendency for us is that we see what we know rather than know what we see. And maintaining a humble, epistemic, Holy Spirit-dependent engagement with the text in a fresh way is huge. Like if I go home, I have a short commute, y'all, to one of, one of my offices, and if you were to ask me, it's like two miles. If you were to ask me, what did I see? I can tell you there's a railroad track and maybe a couple trees. There's a lot more there. But I'm just so used to this layout, I don't really see what's there. So I think it's more that. I think we have just had some frameworks and some epistemic arrogance or certitude where it's extinguished our intellectual and spiritual curiosity of the text. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.